0: Welcome back to our new series that uh, we began last week in Nehemiah. It was terrific. Alex gave us a great introduction to this wonderful book. And I hope you enjoy it. It's a gripping book. It's an exciting book. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible or kind of the Old Testament, uh, I do encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon because Alex gave us all that historical background and where we are in God's story. You see, in Nehemiah, we pick up the story of God and his people. They've been conquered. They've been sent into exile. And after 70 years, a remnant, a small percent, what, two and a half percent or something, have returned to the promised land. It looks so pathetic and weak. Many years later, Nehemiah, just an ordinary person. And if you, I hope you've got your Bibles open. If you look back on the previous page, 467, it stands out. Is made very clear in the way it's laid out in the Bible there. He tells us, I, I was cupbearer to the king. Now, we know that's going to be significant because last week left us on a knife's edge as we work out what's going to happen next. Now, cupbearer is kind of like an important official with benefits, if you like. Uh, he hears what's happening to Nehemiah, uh, it, happening to God's people. We saw that last week. He prays and he takes action. And just, to, just if you like, to give you the big picture of where we are in uh, Nehemiah, chapters 1 to 7 are all about his plan to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And chapters 8 to 13 is where Nehemiah's plans to prepare the people for their new start. So that's kind of where we're going this term. And it's very helpful because Nehemiah means the Lord comforts. Sort of a great example of a person serving God who's greatly used by God. But I want to give you a warning as we begin this series in the book of Nehemiah because lots of people get it wrong. There's lots of books and sermons that misuse and misapply the book of Nehemiah because they take it as this great leadership manual, a kind of how-to for leadership, how to plan and organise projects and execute them. And they sadly missed the point. This isn't a book about leadership skills. This is a book about the God who keeps his promises. That's what we're going to see. And we're going to find how we fit in as we look to God, the hand of God, in our lives, in our world, and see what God is doing now. Let me pray that we might see that. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for today. We thank you that your gracious hand is at work in the lives of your people. And as we look around, we see things that cause us to weep and to mourn. And yet you might use us, Lord, we pray. Give us wisdom to make plans that under you bring you honour and glory. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I couldn't begin a sermon about the gracious hand of God without speaking about the classic hand of God by Diego Maradona. Uh, Of course, uh, it was great to see England eliminated from the 1986 World Cup uh, as they played Argentina. Uh, Maradona said this. He said, a little with the head of Maradona, a little with the hand of God. And Argentina was through. Uh, it was his famous explanation of the controversial goal in that quarterfinal match. Uh, and it's often used by sports people, isn't it? And uh, they say, you know, God's, you know, they want to thank God and God's helped me to do this. And uh, it helps us to ask a very important question. Is God really helping sports stars to win with all the terrible things that are happening in the world. Peter Fitzsimons would put it something like that in his Herald column, wouldn't he? What is God doing in the world? What's God doing in my life? It's an important question. And that's where the book of Nehemiah helps us, because all the way through it's as simple as this. It tells us that God always keeps his promises. It's simple, but we don't always believe it. Mark Twain said this, Most people are bothered by those passages of Scripture which they cannot understand. But as for me, I've always noticed that the passages in Scripture which trouble me the most are those which I do understand. And I think Nehemiah falls into that category for us. We know it, but do we believe it? You see, the book of Nehemiah presents us with the the personal memoirs of a faithful, humble, prayerful servant who God uses to play this strategic role in the history of God's people, reconstructing Jerusalem about 445 years before Jesus. But much more than that, it's the story of how God keeps his promises. And Nehemiah points us to the fact that we need him to keep them by sending his son Jesus. We need to be both comforted and troubled by the word of God to us in Nehemiah as it's appropriate in our lives. Because you see, you and I, we look out in a world and many don't give honour to God with sadness. You know, we we see where our New South Wales Parliament's making uh, laws Around uh, abortion, and, and uh, many thanks to those who have written to local MPs and those who are praying. I'm hoping we can say a prayer in our service today, particularly around that. And I sent you a prayer during the week, and I hope you're praying for our parliamentarians and uh, our very own Scott Farlow. I know very much appreciates the prayers to stand up as a Christian in Parliament and defend those, the lives of those who have yet to be born. We look out in the world, and there's much that's troubling. In our own lives, there are things that are challenging. There are sadnesses, there are griefs. Where is God in all this? And when we look to Nehemiah, we see the faithful remnant, they return, but it's so sad. There's enemies and troublemakers all around. They can't even rebuild the walls of the city to defend Jerusalem. Those who'd come back, who remembered the old temple, wept when they saw just how sad the place was. And Nehemiah, we saw in chapter 1, it hits him in a new way. And he mourns and he fasts and he prays for four months. And he prays because his God's an awesome God. He prays because his God is a faithful God. He prays because his God is the approachable God. And he longs to see God's name honoured in the world. He longs to see God's name honoured among his people. His prayer is a great prayer because he prays to the covenant-keeping God And he takes God's promises back to him. And I want to suggest is actually last week is a great model of prayer for us to take God's promises back to him because God keeps his promises. And so if you pray his promises back to him, you're calling on him to be faithful. And so chapter one is all about what God is like. Chapter two shows us how God works in the world. It's all about the gracious hand of God. And we see three things we see in three ways. We see the providence of God. We see the wisdom of Nehemiah and we see the commitment of the people. So firstly, let's have a look at the providence of God. In your Bibles, have a look at chapter 2 verses 1 to 3. In the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. And so the king asked me, "Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart." It was he I was very much afraid But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Four months of patient prayer elapsed. Here he is, the cupbearer to the king, and we knew that from chapter one, but he's very sad. And uh, it's interesting how this sadness precipitates three Exchanges. firstly the king says why does your face look so sad it could be a threat and it could be just courtesy it could be a kindness and maybe it could be the end the text doesn't tell us but Nehemiah understands the potential for disaster so he wisely says I was very afraid but I said to the king may the king live forever etc etc and he's very careful and, and very very careful in the way he responds to just put His concerns in terms that almost anybody in the Near East would have appreciated. You know, the graves have been destroyed, the ancestors, all those kinds of things. That's what he's worried about. And that precipitates the second exchange, verse 4. King gets straight to the point, what do you want? He's not a dumb king, this one. He gets straight to the point. Nehemiah says in his head, I pray to the God of heaven. In that moment, he'd been praying for four months, but in that moment, as he stood before the king, he shoots a prayer to God, God be with me now. That's what we need, isn't it? So often I pray and uh, I want God to do something in my life and four minutes later, not four months later, I'm surprised when it hasn't all happened. But in four months of tears and fasting and prayer, he's come up with a plan, but in the moment he prays to God. He's planned it out. He knows what needs to be done, but he prays to God. He doesn't know what God will do; otherwise, he would have, wouldn't have been so frightened. You see, there's an enigmatic element in God's providence. You do what is right. You trust in God. You trust God's promises, and you cast yourself upon Him, and you pray to God. And whether He will respond in judgment, or use someone else, or how it will work out, who knows? God knows. He has a plan, but under God, we make plans so that we can honour and glorify him. That's what verse 5 shows us. His plan is to rebuild the city. There's this kind of enigmatic nature to God's providence. But you do what is right, you make plans, you do what is courageous, and you lean on God's promises and you take them back to him. That's what Nehemiah shows us. And so the third exchange comes, verse 7... If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may grant me passage until I arrive in Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the king of, keeper of king the king's forest, directing him to give me timber to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. It's a bit like us as we plan forward for, you know, we're thinking about how do we go developing kids and youth ministry. We might say, Lord, we want to pray for an opportunity so that we might be able to, to reach these people who live in our area with young um, children. We want to build uh, a program, a pipeline into our youth ministry, Lord. And we don't know what the right thing is, but we think that whether we do something in the holidays where we can help kids come in or whether we do something on a Friday afternoon where we gather kids from all over the area and feed them through into our youth group. so they might, We think under God, maybe that's the right thing to do. We pray and we pray and we pray for months and we'll see what God has planned. Um, I loved seeing this morning I saw Alison taking a photo of Nathan I don't know if you saw Nathan Alison was so proud there taking a photo of Nathan but it made me think back how good it is to have Nathan and and Beth and and Elkie and the band when I first came to St Martins it was me up the front who would lead the service who would lead the singing and the preaching and the prayers and there was no band we had the MP3 on the powerpoint and it was really sad I apologise to all of you who were there in those days um, and under God, though, we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And we said, look, Lord, we think these are the things that we need to do to grow your kingdom and to reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus. And we didn't know if God, how God would answer our prayers, did we, Alice? We, 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 we didn't know. But we came before him and prayed and prayed and prayed. And God has blessed us. And what will be next, we don't know. But we trust him and we take his promises back to him. And we he's very specific Nehemiah and it's good for us to be specific as we pray about these things isn't it incredibly the king grants Nehemiah's request and he goes Nehemiah's thought it through all through he's got he's worked out he needs the army he needs the materials he needs the authority he can already see that opposition is going to arise someone's going to send off some nasty letter of complaint someone's going to say oh why are we doing that we tried that years ago and it'll all be over But he wants the ammunition to cut them off early. He wants the imperial sanction, not only for safe conduct, but for blessing so that he can, if you like, clip the wings of his opponents when he gets there, he can be on the front foot. He's thought things through. But I really want you to notice verse 8, because this is the key verse for the whole chapter. The king granted me what I asked, for the gracious hand of my God was upon me. See, it's not Nehemiah's plan that brings it all about. It's the hand of God, the gracious hand of God. So secondly, we see the wisdom of Nehemiah. We're just moving through this chapter relatively quickly. Verse, from verse 11 um, to 13, Nehemiah begins to conduct this kind of nighttime survey of the wall uh, it's like the wardens wandering around St. Martin's, trying to work out where we're we going to put these buildings, how we're we going to sort out, you know, number twelve, number fourteen, how we're we going to, you know, build all of this and and, uh, and make things out. Well, Nehemiah does that too. He conducts this nighttime survey of the wall. He works out what needs to be done. He figures out the whole project. He plans it undercover, as it were, because he knows there's going to be opposition. But what we see is Nehemiah's prudent wisdom, because he's trusting in the gracious hand of God to guide him. And be with him. Verse 12, what my God had put into my heart to Jerusalem. He knows the gracious hand of God's not just working on the king, it's working on his own heart. And if we see that, we learn an incredible truth. Because sometimes, you know, we pick up the Bible and we think, oh, it talks about people and events that are thousands of years ago, historically, culturally, geographically. But how are we going to see the gracious hand of God in our lives, in our church, in what we're doing? Well, Jesus says to his disciples, he says to you and me, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be here. See, God's people, you and I, are to live in such a way that the nations will look on our lives and say, I wish I could have what they have. I wish I could have that kind of peace, that kind of sense of joy, even when things fall apart. That sense of community, that sense of hope, sense of the future i wish i had what they have see what is god doing in my life well the gracious hand of god in nehemiah shows us there's no distinction between the secular and the religious there's no distinction between sunday and monday you know our culture we develop this sort of set of shared practices and attitudes and values and beliefs and we see that in the mainstream media we see it in social media We see it in the music and the TV shows and the movies that we see and the and the plays and all those kind of things. Culture is is shares all of those big questions of life: where does life come from? What does life mean? Who are we? And what's important enough to spend our time and our money doing in the years that are allotted to us? What what should we do? And most fields of work today are dominated by a very set of different set of answers to those of Christianity, those of the Bible, but. When Christians enter a workplace or Christians go into a school or the golf club or wherever it is, they they tend to either seal off their faith and work like everyone else around them or they spout Bible verses and just annoy everybody around them. But if we Christians can do our work and relate to our community in an excellent but a distinctive manner, speaking words seasoned with salt at just the right moment, with prayer... That alone will produce a different kind of culture than the one in which we live now. And the gracious hand of God, I want you to see, is not just for you, it's for us. It's a we thing, not just a me thing. The third thing is the commitment of the people. What can we do? Well, Nehemiah has a plan, but he he needs the people to be with him under God. It's crunch time for Nehemiah. God's gracious hand is not just with him. It's for the people. He speaks to the leaders. Verses 17 and 18. Have a look. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied... Let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. For the first time, we get first-person plurals. Let us rebuild. At this stage, he needs collaboration. He needs the approval. He needs the commitment of the local leaders. He can't just be the lone ranger. As people see his humility and his passionate commitment to the promises of God, they say, it's the gracious hand of God at work. Let's go with him. And so neither Nehemiah nor the people are intimidated by those who want to stop them. You see, enemies arise. Verse 19 to 20. Salab, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, Geshem, the Arab. Uh, basically what it means is there's enemies in the north and there's enemies in the south. The very man who seeks collaborative commitment among God's people nevertheless wants to draw sharp lines. Say, this is what we are doing. Have a look at verses 19 to 20. Uh, verse 20, sorry. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you've got no share or any claim or historic right. He knows when human enemies run into God's grace, the latter smashes the former. Sometimes it takes a stranger to see sharply what has been softened by familiarity. And Nehemiah's perspective is significant. It is an absolute disgrace that Jerusalem is lying in ruins. It's not the, the insecurity of their position which strikes him and leads him to weep, to pray, to plan and to take action. But as the promises of God, only the gracious hand of God can sustain his people And the new Jerusalem, the coming kingdom of God that only Jesus can give us. Has God shown you that perspective? Is that how you look into the world and what God is doing in your life? God is in the habit of keeping His word. No matter what you've done, Jesus shows you and I very clearly because in Him all God's promises come together. He rescues us from sin and judgment. He gives us his spirit. He transforms our hearts by radical grace. And God uses situations. He uses kings. He uses enemies. He uses destruction. He uses humble and godly leaders. He uses committed people to bring about his purposes. He uses us all in different ways. But God will bring about his purposes. So what's the gracious hand of God doing in the world today? You see on the screen. Well, at one level, we want to say... With the sports star like Diego Maradona, well, it's the hand of God. He's behind every blessing, every victory. All good things come from him. And we ought to give thanks. But we need to see it in much bigger ways than just that. Because God is gracious day by day. His blessings are new every morning. And so the question is, will we commit? Will we get on board with what God is doing in my life, in our community, in the places that he has put me? Now, of course, God will accomplish his purposes with or without us. But isn't that all the more reason to get on board with his transforming grace? Let me encourage you. Have you ever stopped to, to reflect, to pray, ask God, why have you put me in this situation? Why have you put me in this job? Why have you given me this network of friends with these gifts and skills? And how can I, how can we together use those blessings to your glory? I can't tell you how encouraged I am by some of the, the people in this congregation say, yeah, Matt, let's go for it. should we have a weekend away you know rob hughes yeah let's go should we do this you know elke was like oh yeah yeah, let's do it you know or something like that um the wardens and the parish council say this is the plan of god we want to do this we want to have a five-year plan to grow our ministry yeah let's do it to say with humility with just as the people did the god of heaven will give us success we his servants will build let's pray Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great promises and we thank you that you're faithful and we pray that we really would read Nehemiah in a God-centered way because you are the Lord of heaven and earth. You're in control of all things. Your gracious hand is on not only our hearts but the hearts of kings, the hearts of the premier, the prime minister, the hearts of business leaders, of everyone in our community. We know that you are bringing things forward under Jesus. One day, all things will be brought under him. We give you praise and honour and glory. We know that everything in Nehemiah's plans points to the need for new life in Jesus. We thank you for those you've put around us who we might have the opportunity to share, to pray and to bless. Use us, Lord, we pray. Give us success as we build, to bring, as we seek to bring honour and glory to your name.